today on Edge Effects. What I hope is that I'm just a mess like everyone else, that (laughs) this poet body that moves through these poems is as enmeshed, as polluted and polluting as everything else. Professor Lynn Keller speaks with poet Brian Teer. They discuss why knowing where your water comes from is important, how Tear's poetry reflects that commitment to understanding and experiencing the watersheds and landscapes he moves through, and how an encounter with an oil-soaked bird sparked his latest book of poems, Doomstead Days. So Doomstead Days opens with what seems to have been a kind of turning point experience for you. You're witnessing an oil spill in the San Francisco Bay when you were living in the Bay Area. How did that event launch this collection of poetry? I'm glad it seems that way to you, that it was a turning point. I think um, the image that, one of the images that opens the poem is the image of watching uh, bird rescuers um, try to clean oiled uh, waterfowl, and particularly a western grebe. And I think that moment changed me um, in the sense that I have been writing what some folks would call eco-poetry for a while, but maybe intellectually understood a lot of things about our environment, about environmental crisis, about oil, um, and maybe had not felt them experientially. Like I am kind of a Deweyan person in that I believe experience is like, you know, we have to experience things to learn them in a, in, in a, in be physicalized um, in order to learn things. And so, you know, again, I know that, but I I had not had the, you know, wouldn't say privilege uh, because it's, one doesn't want to say it's a privilege to witness a bird being killed or or the environment being wrecked, but I hadn't been that close to environmental crisis before um, in in that spectacle sense. Like we're all in environmental crisis all the time. Our bodies are totally riddled with toxins, but all of that feels pretty intellectual. And this just didn't, it was very alarming. Um, so actually the whole, I witnessed that in 2007 um, and really just didn't know. It took me, you know, another 10 years to finish this book as a whole and took me another four years to finish that poem. Because um, hmm. it just took, I could not assimilate. I couldn't figure out how to write it um, and how to respond in a, in a what seemed to be an adequate fashion. I don't think writing maybe can respond to such things yeah. in an adequate way. But so the the poem really it is a turning point, and that image in particular was a turning point for me, trying to figure out how to do justice to that moment. I guess the poem is titled Clearwater Renga, mm-hmm. and the Renga is traditionally a collaborative form in which multiple authors contribute stanzas. Is there a way in which that poem or this book feels to you like a collaborative work? That's a great question. So the earliest versions of that poem were what I would say like collaboratively documentary in that I made these rules that the tercets and couplets mm-hmm. would all be from different sources. And it was oh. like, it was terrible. It did not, it was very willful. It did not really make sense. It certainly didn't do justice to the things I was interested in in speaking to. And so um, the poem still retains a lot of sources, and some of which are overtly quoted, um, like the YouTube footage over the BPL, BP um, Deepwater Horizon spill or my friend Martha Surface's letter from coastal Louisiana, um, there are plenty of what I would call like buried. There's a, it's very deeply researched poem. So there's a lot of material in there that's basically summarized or, or rephrased that I would also suggest is like kind of collaboratively authored. Um, but which I felt this book is a departure for me and that I really, um, downplayed the citational. Mm-hmm. Um, I got rid of the kind of scholarly apparatus of the bibliography at the end of the book, and I really wanted a slightly um, more accessible surface, I guess. Um, 
I'm someone who loves Marianne more deeply, for instance, and have written very essay-like poems that do a lot of citation and quote and are very essay-like and in the way that, let's say, like an octopus to me is very essay-like or marriage is a very essay-like poem. And I love those poems. But they're hard. Mm -hmm. And I often think that they put us, they very deliberately put a scrim of learning and of citationality in front of things. And in Companion Grasses, I was very interested in an idea that I kind of got from Rebecca Solnit, which is that we can't really look at landscape. We only look at our ideas of landscape. And I thought about an octopus mm -hmm. um, and the way that a poem like that builds this sort of like cascade of citations into the looking at a thing. And I was really interested in that in Companion Grasses. In this book... I wanted some of that to be there, but I was very aware that there's a kind of, I guess, like a certain kind of aesthetic distance and privilege um, in putting endless citation in front of a thing. And that I wanted, I wanted to honor our physical kind of co-embodiment and entanglement a little bit more um, than in a linguistic or citational way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, the Ranga form started as more willfully collaborative, and I still think of it as that, but it's less, um, I let go of some of the formal constraints that I had had before that were a very one-to-one -one ratio mm -hmm. um, in the way, like trying to mimic the original right. Ranga form. Right. Well, one of the ways in which th these poems are grounded is that they arise from very specific locations. It seems that it's from quite personal experiences of the local that you're able to connect to larger, maybe global environmental issues. Would you talk, for instance, about how your firsthand experience of the California drought uh, has shaped your thinking in writing mm. about water? There's a good deal of writing about water in the mm. book, and there's also awareness of that particular experience of that's, drought. That's really interesting. I mean, it is what I think of as a watershed book. And mm -hmm. so for me, each of these poems is pretty conscious. Maybe, yeah, each of these poems is pretty conscious about the watershed in which it is written, um, whether either specifically naming that and, and na tracing some of the tributaries and like how the water moves through the space. Um, or at least aware of the water politics of the place. I will say that the drought started after I left. Mm -hmm. um, so it pretty much like started exactly mm -hmm. when I left mm -hmm. California. So when I moved, I actually was rereading a very um, early book of mine, Pleasure, which I wrote during 2002 to 2003, um, and is not an eco-book, but is maybe the first book in which I start to deliberately write from landscape in a much more metaphysical, untroubled way. And that book actually records an earlier iteration of drought, where when I first moved to California, there were brownouts, um, and the drought was, and there were fires. And I was kind of surprised. I mean, I know it's not new. I know California in many ways is designed to burn. It's a landscape that has a lot of um, fire-adapted plants, et cetera. It's supposed to do the burning. Mm -hmm. But I had kind of forgotten my experience of alarm when I first moved there in the middle of a drought, in the middle of fires, in the middle of these forced um, rationing of electricity. So I wouldn't say this book is really written out of that awareness, um, though of course it's written having experienced some of that, but not actually the most mm -hmm. recent iteration. All the poems sort of the last two-thirds of the book, they're all Pennsylvania or New uh -huh. England or poems. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I don't... I mean, some of the drought... We were in a drought, for instance, when I wrote... Uh, Pencil by we, I mean Pennsylvanians mm -hmm. were in mm -hmm. a drought for several years. And so the final poem, Doomstead, the title poem, Doomstead Days, does mention like the sort of relationship of, of fracking mm -hmm. um, and that immense waste of water that happens in fracking and that, you know, companies had no restrictions over the amount of water they took um, while the state was in drought. So I think I was aware of that and aware of the drought. Um, there's also the sitting isohydric meditation that is a drought poem too. But those are actually in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, which obviously has had a very different, it has yes. a very different water history and a very different environmental history. But yeah, I think those poems actually, the drought 
played out in just such a different way yeah. and much more invisible yes. than in California. Yes, and not the dramatic fires and yeah. so forth. Yeah, but there is that sense of place, and it's it is enacted in a lot of the poems from your walking that the poems trace walks. And some of the poems also speak quite directly to what walking does for you. But mm-hmm. still, I'd love to hear you talk about what walking means to you and provides for you. Yeah, I think I'm really someone who feel very strongly, at least about bioregional literacy. And that's something that I have a relationship to through Gary Snyder's advocacy for bioregional literacy and also for him bioregional living and living in one's watershed and bioregion and being very deeply of a place in that way. As a city dweller, I don't have quite the same kind of homesteading um, uh, life that he has. But I think uh, intimacy, I think a lot since I teach in an urban campus and I teach environmental studies and I teach bioregional literatures to my students, I think a lot about what bioregional means in a city. And my students often ask because they're they're like, what use is it to me to know things like when does the first, you know, flowering tree flower or what kind of tree that is? And I totally get that. It's not, I I don't, I'm not dogmatic about it. But I do think, for instance, knowing where your water comes from and knowing where, how, let's say, the oil industry and water um, intersect in Philadelphia, which is, as you already know, like a major part of the center of the book. Those things are important and are part of bioregional literacy, like how industry and, and hydrology sit side by side and, are, and how industry is built on top of a, a place's hydrology. All that is to say, like, walking is a form of physical intimacy with a place, and it is a way of getting to know a place um, on a human scale. Um, and that a place can really, you can, again, know all sorts of intellectual things about a place, but I think it's really important to do the embodying work of mm-hmm. being in relation to a place. Um, and that that takes time, and it takes a certain amount of effort, and it takes a certain amount of interest and curiosity. Um, and it's also a form of pleasure. I mean, ultimately, like walking for me is just a deeply yeah. pleasurable measure of a place. And so... For me, it does, as it has for many writers. It generates language, you know, like encounters in the field, encounters with things I don't know, encounters with sensations, smells, tastes, you know, textures, all of those things. Yeah, they're relational. They're part of how you know you're entangled with a place. And that's really important to me, especially to get into a contemporary poem during a time when so many people, even like people who are kind of in, um, you might think of as environmental thinkers are claiming that we can't know, let's say, like I think a lot about Timothy Morton's hyperobjects and I think how brilliant he is, but also how problematic that idea is because it keeps certain things that I think actually in some ways are knowable outside of the reach of knowing. And so for me, I think watching anthropogenic change at a local level, let's say, the way one can in Philadelphia. It's a way of sort of seeing on foot with one's body and mind the the things that are happening in analogous ways on a biospheric level, the kind of way that we're entangled and sort of un, inextricable from, mm-hmm. you know, more, quote, natural processes around us like hydrology. And so one can witness those things on foot, too, in a way that isn't abstract, and I think as a way of, of you know, teaching oneself what it means to be in a place. And some of the poems in, in Doomsday Day suggest that you write as you walk, not just that you take out a notebook when you sit down at some overlook or stop for a rest or something, but that you actually sometimes make notes as you're walking. So talk more about how the actual writing process and walking are connected for you. You said it generates language. Can you say more? Yeah. I mean, it, each poem, or not, I should say the walking, what I think of as the walking meditations in the book, um, as opposed to the two sitting meditations, they mm. generate, um, I would say, like, each time I walk a place and I do it in the deliberate way of, like, I think there's a poem in in relation to this place, I kind of generate what I think of as, like, a rough 
maybe like somatic map of my first encounter with the place. And that is a combination of phrases that I just generate on foot as like I'm walking, which might be more fragmentary or notational. It might just be like a rhyme or a musical phrase. Um, like there's a phrase in um, convincing you have a seed here, botched swaths, which came up when I was looking at this fungus on a, on a birch. And so the po the note itself might just be botched swaths, but it's at the place in the in the map where I encounter that birch. And so I've had like all sorts of notes leading, you know, for pages up to that. And I know sometimes I do write when I stop because I have a longer or more more fully realized idea or set of phrases. But I think of that as the rhythm of the walk, that some of them are fragmentary and notational and musical, and then others are more fully realized sort of idea ch you know, chunks um, or arguments or something. And that I think of that as part of the map, that some, some encounters or some parts of the walk evoke a lot of language and some, you know, the way we all do when we walk, like some places you stop and you look for a while and then others you just kind of walk by and they're sort of, you know, ambient noise, you know. And so for me, I kind of keep that as the measure of the walk. And then um, later on, we'll transcribe that. I'll add to it over other walks, but then I'll also then eventually sit down and transcribe it into a, a Microsoft Word document and then maybe interleave in what I've been reading or like that convince me you have a seed here. A lot of that is in part like the stuff from a GMO Mm -hmm. website about GMO trees, which is kind of what triggered that walk. But then reading Thoreau, and then there's a bunch of, um, we were speaking at lunch about Michael Martyr, um, the plant philosopher, vegetal being philosopher. And so there's a lot of stuff that I kind of cribbed and rephrased from him in that poem. And so all of that makes it kind of like into the final weave that is based on the kind of somatic map of the original encounter with the place. Mm -hmm. In that somatic map, it's, there's a lot of emphasis on, I, I'm guessing, or certain from, from the work, a lot of emphasis on what places sound like. Mm -hmm. There's a drive to like see with your ears as much as with your eyes, right? Um, and the play of sounds, in especially the echoing, I think, of vowel sounds, adds a wonderful richness to your poetry. Can you talk about how you think about soundscapes and about sound in your mm. poetics? I'm interested in how the two are connected. Yeah. I mean, the, this won't surprise anyone who knows the history of English poetry, but like the original place where a lot of that comes from is Hopkins, you know, and this notion that you could get to an inscape of a thing or a place through sound. I mean, through rhythm and prosody, that you could harness English prosody to somehow, like, you know, provide a portrait of something. What I love about Hopkins is, like, what I love about romanticism in general is, like, are those things really inscapes or is that his body? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think it's probably his body, mostly. It's like, that's what his body sounds like in relation to other things. That's my takeaway from that. Um, so I'm super aware, on the one hand, that there is a kind of anthropocentric solipsism here in terms of like, this is my registration. The, if I am like a recording device in the field, it is the technology of my body that is rendering that sound. So it's not like, a, like I'm sure you know um, the work of Bernard Krauss, who talks about biophonies and like sort of like the literal sonic landscape of a place and of specific ecosystems. And so I encountered that work, his work, like while writing this book. And it definitely, I think retroactively, I was like, well, that would be cool if that's what I were doing. <laughs> I don't think I have any illusion that I can do that <laughs> because I'm not a tape recorder, you know, like, and, and if I tried to be a tape recorder, I'd be lying. I think is the more important part of that. I think there is actually like, I am a mammal in the field um, and I'm using my registration tools to like, you know, elicit what the relationship is like. To me that there is like maybe that promise or that illusion or that aspiration that I am tracking some kind of biophonic relationship to a place. But it's a, 
it's a biophony with a lot of static on my end. Um, and I would never pretend otherwise as a poet. I think I would be fooling myself. That said, like as the book, as I revised the book and as I went on, yeah, there's something, I have this idea that if sightedness is so imperial or has often been critiqued as like a site of, of empire and also like of the empirical, sound often isn't. And sound is like a much more, it's got a less hierarchical, more horizontal feel to it. It's much more, again, like I think of a mammalian sense. We don't do a lot with sound. I mean, we do obviously with music, like classical music and jazz and stuff. But it's much, it bypasses a lot of the tools of the empirical that we often think of language and of sight as um as kind of harnessing or putting into play. So there is something really animal to me about rhythm and, and the physical, um, or I should say mammalian. There's just something really pleasurable about it um, and much more physical. And I think of, you know, the attention some poets have to birds and this kind of like the rhythmic quality and the musical quality of, of that song language. I'm not really a birder, so I'm not very good with birds, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. There's, I, that might be like a kind of a spatter of an answer, but I'm still thinking about it because I think it's a, it's both like a site of richness for me. And I love that you've said like to see, to see with my ears, I think is really true. It's like something I've been obsessed with for a long time, but what that means and if it has a politics or an ethics, you know, like, we can't quite say yet. Maybe, maybe in book seven or eight or nine or something, I'll have, I'll have something more on that. Well, but as I say, the the sounds in your work are, you know, are certainly key to the pleasures mm -hmm. that it brings to the reader. It's really a wonderful yeah. oral experience. I'm going to take you back though to sort of the more empirical for a minute. Um, neither you nor I is a botanist, but it seems to me that you love learning the names of plants uh, and the scientific names of their parts, and you incorporate bits of that terminology into your poetry. Do you think that learning the names of plants, or for that matter, of insects, or geological formations, or whatever, the, those things around us, is it a valuable practice generally, or is that just something that you and I happen to care about because mm -hmm. we're sort of word nerds, you know? So maybe I'm asking... How do you think naming alters our attention to our environment? Oh, that's such a great question. I think naming is a form of attention. It's also attention, um, mm -hmm. but it's a form of attention, um, and particularly scientific naming. Like I remember, I had when I was working on the very beginning of companion grasses, which is where I would say like that naming really starts for me where I actually am doing that work. I remember I was um, at McDowell and I had, had that maybe like newbie kind of like field guide enthusiasm. And so I bought like this field guide to grasses and I like went outside into the field cause it's very grassy there. And I realized how hard it was. Um, and how differently I would have to look at things in order to even begin the beginnings of taxonomy and like and morphology and like really recognizing shapes and, and parts of the plan. And it was like a completely different way of looking at something. And I remember the uh, essayist Lewis Hyde was there at the same time. And he saw me, I don't know, I was like in a ditch or something looking at you know, like trying to f figure <laughs> out what, it, some yeah, plan. some something, and he just kind of laughed, and he was like, "You really don't know what you're getting into, kid." And I was like, "Yeah, this is really hard. The wildflowers are so much." You know, he was like, "You're starting with grasses, which is really dumb because they right now he's like because he obviously knew far better than I. This early in the season, they're they don't even have any inflorescences, so you can't really tell a lot of them apart. They all look the same right now." you should wait, you know, for two months or whatever, and then it'll be easier. 
And I did eventually take his advice and like move on to wildflowers for a while because I was like, okay, man, man knows whereof he speaks. But for me, it taught me like, and also that for every kind of um, group of being, trees, birds, mammals, there's a completely new like way of looking and different sort of like way you have to see and different kinds of characteristics and different things that you end up looking for and that each of them is like its own form of looking with its own form of language. Again, you know, I think of that as relational. I also think obviously it's very empirical and scientific and like the way that humans have like sort of organized things. Then more maybe hopeful part of me is that a kind of, especially for an amateur person like myself, who's not going to kill any of these things And my looking at them is not based on killing them or taking them, you know, killing them and then taking them off. And specimens. And specimens, Mm -hmm. et cetera. That's not what I'm doing. It feels pretty, a little bit more ethically neutral. But I'm aware, as, you know, anyone would be like, well, (laughs) my looking and my like doing this work is based on this long history of slaughter and specimen and et cetera. So, yeah, I think that, you know, there's always that being... I feel like every eco thing leads us back to like, we, this is the damage we've done. Like by being in relation, we've tended to be in relation through forms of violence um, as well as forms of co-presence and like sort of appreciation. And like, they've never not been intertwined. Yes. So looking and naming, it is a species of attention and it can be a respectful, nonviolent one, but it's always enmeshed in a long history of violence and kind of and imperialism and murder and all those things. So, I mean, to me, I think of it as a form of trying to respect, you know, co-presence and co-being, but, mm-hmm. but it's always sticky, you know, it's always enmeshed in this, this, yeah. the, the, the history of what human looking has wrought. Yeah. So I know it's hard to excerpt from your poems, none of which are short here, but I wonder if you would read a section that can give our audience a a flavor for how you do approach representing uh, the kind of toxicity in our environment. Sure. So this is an excerpt from um, a 50-page poem (laughs) called Toxics Release Inventory. Um, And this is a poem that's set in... Uh, and around Philadelphia and um, both represents the kind of notebook practice of writing these poems but also the walking on foot um, and kind of the interleaving of of researched fact with kind of experience I think this section I'm going to read is a little bit more fact than walking but it's definitely speaks directly to the kind of enmeshment with contamination and i should say one of the uh intertexts of toxics release inventory is um pope's essay on man which is essay on man is the subtitle of of toxics release inventory and i was really i love that poem and in part i love that poem because it's a portrait of a world we do not live in anymore it's this highly ordered hierarchical and neat space. Some people, I think, think we live in it, but we gen- we really don't. I'm not nostalgic for that. I just, like, I, th- I find cosmologies very moving, like, as gestures. And in some ways, this book is kind of a cosmology, but mm-hmm. it's one that isn't empirical. <laughs> so I'll just read this section. I only say all that because Pope is, makes a little guest appearance in this. The notebook's open additive, a choice, situation for desires, greedy, accretive, and, 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 endlessly. See? Through this air, this ocean, this earth, all matter quick, bursting into birth. How high life may go, how wide, how deep extend below, writes Pope. And I hear instead of his praise the change, we bring to the terms of life how we make matter an antagonist when industry goes so wide so deep and touches us so totally we find our final 
privacies violated. Benzene and styrene, toluene and N-hexane, carbon disulfide and acetone. Six toxics present in 94 to 100% of people tested, both urban and rural. People whose blood and urine carries the cost of merely breathing as they go to work and are not broken by contaminants or are not yet broken by the slow violence latent in the wake of bioaccumulants and synergistic toxins stored in fat in the liver and kidneys where one errancy can birth an illness that quickens matter the way the refinery visits affliction upon working-class neighbors through on-site toxics released into air. Breathing sulfuric acid fumes leads to asthma, the way benzene gas fosters cognitive problems and leukemia in extreme cases. It's so bad having these fumes in your mouth and not knowing what they are, says activist Teresa Hill, who lives nearby with her kids who can't breathe without medical bills, totally thousands. I write down asthma, cluster, environmental racism, underline her words, then a line of Merleau-Ponty's. Where are we to put the limit between the body and the world since all the world is flesh? The question's stakes change when I think of tasting fumes as I mouth the words. Thank you. Well, here's a bit of a shift, maybe to another kind of violence. You've suffered a great deal of chronic pain and chronic illness, and dealing with that, partly through the thinking of Agnes Martin, is foregrounded in your book from 2015, The Empty Form Goes All the Way to Heaven. How do you think your own experience of illness feeds into your writing as an eco-poet, and particularly in this new book, Doomstead Days? It's a great question. So I have a really, I have a, a, a great friend named Susan Tishy, who's a wonderful poet who just has a new book called The Avalanche Path in Summer. That is her kind of like love song to living in the, in the Rockies. And she noted kindly that I had been incredibly ill when I was writing parts of Companion Grasses and that none of that is in the poem. And I it was hard to argue with. And it was hard to argue with the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of disability studies, like there's a really great new volume of essays about environmental humanities and disability studies and, and the sort of myths of the natural as like a place of health and, mm -hmm. and also the naturalist as a healthy body. Um, it made me think, yeah, thinking about that made me think about the ways in which, you know, we don't think of Thoreau as tubercular you know, and like out huckleberrying while he's really ill, or we don't often think of Rachel Carson as dying of cancer while writing most of Silent Spring. And so what are the ways in which environmental literature itself has kind of edited out illness? There are exceptions like Terry Tempest Williams' mm -hmm. Refuge is like a really, you know, foregrounds cancer and illness right away. There are other texts I'm sure I'm forgetting right now, but it was really important to me to kind of, especially after writing The Empty Form, to not erase that aspect of embodiment. And actually late Thoreau, um, late Thoreau's writings on um, leaf litter and decay and um, the role of decay as its own kind mm -hmm. of um, part of the, of the life cycle made me think about how to place illness side by side with natural phenomenon. I think it was hard for me as an intellectual question because in a political and aesthetic one, because I didn't, by refocusing back on my human body, I didn't want to then just be anthropocentric or just tell my story. Not that I guess I couldn't do that and it would be fine, but I wanted to be able to place the experience of, let's say, medicalization or of degenerative arthritis like in the context of, of an embodiment with the larger world and the crises the larger world is facing and not place an analogy per se or just claim that somehow my disability or my illness has something to do with like environmental crisis because it doesn't. But are they simultaneous? 
They are. And so how do you do that? And so, yeah, I found it hard. I didn't know how to do it. And then Susan was just like, well, just make it part of your notes. Like you're just editing, you're not even recording it when it happens in the walks, you know, like you just have to promise me that you'll just write it down. And so then I started writing it down and at least making it part of, especially because often like to be real, like I wouldn't hike if I couldn't walk or if I was having immense trouble walking, I just wouldn't do it. So those days when I would go and was feeling able enough to do it were days when I wasn't having that many problems. So yeah, it it was a challenge, but I thought of it as, um, you know, part of the record uh, of these poems and part of their commitment to being embodied in a place and part of, of trying to make that visible. Also, there's that idea that Ammons has in Poem is a Walk, where he says a bunch of things about, he kind of makes this great analogy um, or great metaphor and then says the walk, a poem like a walk is, has a, a gate characteristic of the walker. Like, you know. And so for me, I was like, well, my gate is sometimes hobbled or, or compromised um, or inflected by, let's not say compromised, let's say inflected by that fact. And so let's make it part of the record. Because um, it is now, it's really part of my gate. Whether I do that well or not is, you know, up to other people to decide. But it is something I made a promise to my friend Susan, and I thought she was right in, in sort of suggesting it. We made a promise mm-hmm. to each other. So her, her, her book also records some of her, her embodied mm-hmm. struggles. So I do think that that vulnerability is an enhancement in the work and it's it's separated from something else that you do insist on which is the harmfulness of tons of chemicals that we are in our industrial development releasing into our environment chemicals that are absorbed into our bodies right right um you know through what say stacy alamo in her book bodily natures calls transcorporeality right mm-hmm. we are definitely transcorporeal entities it's a thread that runs through the work quite a bit uh, as you do think about the impact of the oil industry, for instance, in Pennsylvania. And I wondered, do you see your work as trying to r- help raise awareness of chemical pollution and its consequences? Is that one of your aims, or is this... Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I called this book Doomstead Days is not just because that title poem is really crucial to me, but because we are living in doomstead days, we have an, a government that is deregulating protections uh, for, well, pretty much mm-hmm. everything, but for the environment in particular, and also closing borders, much like a doomstead does, um, shutting things down and trying to amass as much ammo and resources as possible. That's a doomsteading mentality. Um, shutting the borders down and only taking care of your own and amassing as much of the resources as possible. And that is what is happening. It ignores all, it ignores everything about how life really works. And by life, I mean like biological life um, really works. That it is porous, it is leaky, it is entangled, it is, and it is insatiably so. It will always find a way to be so, no matter how hard you try. And so it is a fiction, like this kind of doomsday mentality. Um, Unfortunately, it's becoming enshrined in law. It's becoming enshrined in all sorts of environmental policy and all sorts of deregulation. Um, And it's the exact opposite vision of the world than seems to me and many other people to be how the world actually works. So for me, what I want, I mean, I... I hope that the poems avoid teachiness mm-hmm. or a kind of like I am a model for something or because I think what I hope is that I'm just a mess like everyone else, you know, like that <laughs> this poet body that moves through these poems is like as enmeshed, as polluted and polluting as everything else. And so that I think is cr- crucial to the m- moral and ethical impulse of the book is to is to show 
the painfulness of that self-knowledge, what you would call self-consciousness, um, and which I think is right. Like, that's painful. It is not easy knowledge. And it is, I think, it bears repeating because it is hard to learn. Um, and so part, the book is in some ways repeats that lesson endlessly. Like every poem is an exercise yeah. in stating that. And I'm fine with that mm -hmm. because I, it took me 10 years to write this book, to like really come to some way of assimilating it and also to come in some way out the other side to say there is still joy in this entanglement. There is still joy in this embodiment. There might not be for that much longer, honestly, and it might be the privilege of this moment to still find joy there. But for now, there is still something to be had in that interrelationship. So I do think, I mean, but you're also right that there are basics about, let's say, being alive now in terms of the toxic burdens we carry and specific as, as, as you're suggesting to Philadelphia and the, with um, proximity to the oil refinery, there are very specific toxic burdens that people bear in relation to that refinery. And yeah, it's amazing that Philadelphians don't know that. And it's amazing what just most ordinary Americans don't know about the great acceleration and the release, the sort of, um, accelerating release of chemicals into into the environment post-war and that that's not just nuclear iso, you know radioactive isotopes but plastics pesticides all those things and that those are accumulating in all of us yes. at, at varying rates and so yeah i hope i don't mind i did like there is an aspect of this book that's didactic in that sense and i am like 100 okay with that in terms of like it's hard to remember that it's mm -hmm. hard to walk around with that knowledge. And I feel like we do a lot, by we, I mean myself included, to forget that or to make life bearable, yeah. you know, and you kind of have to forget some of it to even like, I was joking with a friend, to even boil water <laughs> and make tea. You have to think about like, what, what are the trade routes that got the tea here? And like, where is the energy for this boiling water coming from? And where did this water come from? And like just the networks that are involved in that simple act are bonkers. They're yeah. overwhelming. They're so overwhelming. So it's no no surprise that people don't necessarily want to spend all their time. No, uh, no, I can't. In those terms, I can't yeah. blame anyone yeah, for not right, wanting right. to. Do you think that you write uh, explicitly as a gay white man, mm -hmm. which means that you write partly from a position of privilege and partly from a position of vulnerability and marginalization? How do you think that positionality affects your approach to writing about these environmental issues, or does it? Yeah, I think a lot about, specifically I think a lot about the coincidental simultaneity of early years of great acceleration with, let's say, women's lib, with gay liberation, um, and the kinds of revolutions in gender identities, gender politics, that also take place during the same moment of acceleration. Granted, like, you know, a decade afterwards or a decade and a mm -hmm. half afterwards. But, you know, I've, I've read enough kind of feminist research into, let's say, the pill and the pill's role in women's liberation, but also how the pill is this interesting intersection of great acceleration technologies of pharmaceuticals and plastics. Like that little mm -hmm. plastic disc mm -hmm. was revolutionary in both being discreet and portable and kind of cute. And that it was something that made birth control um, so easy to use, so easy to hide, actually, and so easily available and so mass mass producible. And so I think of that. And I also think of the ways in which I am a gay man who's alive. I didn't die of AIDS. Um, and the ways in which um, that's all due to pharmaceuticals um, and biotech. Um, and those industries, which again, come directly out of the great acceleration politics. And so, and have made possible certain identity positions honestly. Um, so I think, you know, I, the 
poem Toxics Release Inventory tries to do a little bit of that work and thinking about post-exposure prophylaxis and how that does change my subject position actually in the world. Um, But also, I yeah, so I think about it a lot and obviously the thinking about that still goes forward for me and then it's like not resolved or like I haven't figured out ultimately what all of that means. But I do think of what that insight enabled me to think is to reverse engineer it and say like, well, what about the Anthropocene as a gender? Um, Which is like what that poem, Doomstead Days, is about. Yes, and you start out, today's gender is rain. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, I really wanted to, again, like do this, like that insight about the great acceleration and, and gay liberation really allowed me to ask these questions about, yeah, the Anthropocene and its relationship to gender, how we all actually perform Anthropocene-ness in both these very chosen ways and in these largely unchosen ways, um, the ways in which we're sort of um, compulsorily performing Anthropocene-ness, whether it's because we drive a car or, you know, whatever, we're wearing clothing and eating food, we're performing Anthropocene-ness. But how many of us make those strategic choices and then how many of, and like try to perform an ethics around how you buy clothing and what you eat and what you drink and all of those kinds of things. And those of us who don't do that work, um, for whatever reason, either because they think, fuck it, we're dead, doesn't matter what I do, I'll, you know... I'll eat whatever I want. Or those who think like, oh my God, every piece of meat I eat is like killing Gaia, I must stop. But every decision is like that. Every decision to me is is in some ways a performance of our relationship to the, the great acceleration and the Anthropocene. And that I think of that as a lot weirdly like a kind of ambient structure like gender in that all of us perform and articulate gender in more or less chosen or unchosen ways and that we navigate everything through the through that and it is also like a larger structure that we navigate and so the longer I thought about it the more I thought like what is the difference between like couldn't I just say like well I'm not really male I'm Anthropocene which obviously is you know reductive and and ignoring a lot of privilege but I was interested in playing with that and seeing what would happen um, if I did. And what I what I discovered is like that word gender actually comes down to fertility and reproduction and the sort of like and the idea of engendering, whether that's like actual fertility or it's like a kind of um, ongoingness, ongoing energy. And to me, that is what being like what's at the root of being is like this kind of force, this kind of kinetic it's where I think I like as much as I have so many critiques of Ammons, it's one of the things I like find lovely about his work is the way that it's about this kind of kinesis and this like ongoingness and this kind of like principle of, of um, connectivity and, and ongoingness. And I find that there's maybe it's like the one optimistic thing that I see in, in this particular book. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so today's gender as rain is literally, I feel like, one of those lines that came to me, and I, which I think happens a little less frequently as I get older. And so it was like one of those gifts, and I was like, I have to write the poem equal to this line hmm. because this line is so gorgeous, and I have no idea what it means. What does it mean? I have to write a poem to like prove this line hmm. or not prove it, but like hmm. make it, make it real, make it uh, work in the world. And so I, th- I believe I did. Mm-hmm. I believe oh, I think it's a wonderful poem. Yeah. yeah. And you gestured here towards ongoingness. What do you hope that this particular volume might convey about how to keep going? Humankind and many Holocene species may have no future. Yeah. I was just at a reading. I just gave a reading in Chicago and someone asked me, if you had a question for your book, what would it be? Mm. You're going to, and I was like, great way to put me on the spot there. Uh, <laughs> so I've audience, done it again. <laughs> audience member. <laughs> and actually the question I asked the book is how do we keep going? Yeah. I don't think I have an answer. I don't, I don't think I have an answer. I think like most people, I struggle with that, you know, 
pretty much every day in all in all the choices the, those material choices that I've talked about which I for whatever reason do choose to think of as meaningful and full of agency I think the question is like how to do no harm here you know and I don't think we can do no harm here and so if you can't if you can't not do harm how do you then mitigate it or reduce it and Part of that, I guess, is being conscious of what harm you are doing. And I think that's the hard thing about us as first world people. Um, maybe this is true of most people on the planet at this point is, but that we are both, we are both harming and harmed. Um, we are harmed by what we've done, um, by the harm we are doing. It just hasn't come home to roost yet. I think for, for especially for people in the first world of, of of the harm hasn't come back quite to, the, especially to the right people who might make choices that would affect policy or affect our safety or, um, or affect change in a large scale way. But yeah, I mean, I, if I knew that answer, I'd be out doing it. You know, I think it is just on some level, a consciousness raising effort. I'm surprised as a teacher, what, that this is, it's possible to be a citizen of the world at this point and not think of these things. I, and I want, I do want to change that. I mm -hmm. do want to make sure people are thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they feel the agency to change is part of what it makes this culture hard. This culture makes it hard to change the kinds of things that would affect the change we need. I think we should wrap it up there. I thank you so much for talking and also for this book that does make the effort to think these things through. Oh, thank you for your oh, questions. I appreciate book. it. Oh, thank you. That was Lynn Keller, the Martha Mayer Rank Bascom Professor of Poetry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Director of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment. She publishes frequently on contemporary poetry and eco-poetics. Learn more about her work at her website, lynnkeller.info, or by listening to the May 2018 EdgeFX podcast interview with her about her most recent book, Recomposing Eco-Poetics, North American Poetry of the Self-Conscious Anthropocene. She was in conversation with poet Brian Teer, an associate professor at Temple University and the author of five critically acclaimed books, including Companion Grasses and The Empty Form Goes All the Way to Heaven. His sixth book, Doomstead Days, is just out from Nightboat Books. Find out more about his work at his website, frontier.net. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Carly Griffith and me, Laura Perry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more episodes, including a conversation with author Kim Stanley Robinson about his latest novel, Red Moon. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeEffectsMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net. <laughs>